Amen. Thank you, Brett. Good morning, everybody. Uh, those who are new and um, here for the first time, we are jumping in. You are jumping in in the middle of our study in First Timothy. And uh, yeah, we have a lot of people traveling. Most of our student body is gone and 10 different kinds of sickness that are going through the body. So if you're here and you're healthy, praise the Lord. Um, all right, so we're picking up in chapter 4. And uh, our text this morning at the end of chapter 4 continues in Paul's exhortation to Timothy. Um, as Timothy leads a church in Ephesus, we're transitioning from promoting godly living and doctrine last week to this week how he does that by being a, an example in all things. And so, you know, I was struck with that when I came here because I've been in churches my entire life, but I realized I'd never been in a church that held doctrine high and loved and served and cared for one another and was in each other's homes. I'd never been in a church that I'd read in the scriptures. And so coming here, realizing if, if this is going to be that kind of church, I have to set the example. And I have to be the first one to admit when I'm wrong and ask for forgiveness and humble myself. And the Lord has brought many others who feel the same way, and I'm so thankful uh, for a church that desires to be examples to one another and to spur one another on. So while this passage is written to pastors and it has a lot of benefits to shepherds in the local church and there's a lot of weight for pastors, I know myself and the other elders read texts like this and we feel the weight of our responsibility and our example that we must set before the body, um, it's not just for pastors. There are two ways that this text is typically neglected. Number one is the obvious one. Um, many church leaders are not truly shepherds. Many don't take stock of their own souls. They don't fear the Lord or the call. They don't realize the, the, um, the call and the expectation that is on them. So first and foremost, this is a text of self-examination. And then of application. So that's the uh, first way. Uh, the second way is what many of you, most Christians, are, could be guilty of. Most church members think this only applies to pastors. In that, they think, since I don't have a public ministry, since I'm not called to read the scripture on Sunday morning, since I don't have a, a teaching, uh, counseling, shepherding, oversight ministry, then I can just check out in a text like this. I have no obligation. I don't have any call to be an example to others. And it's easy to sit back and be a consumer and say, this, this text is just for Tim and Brett and Jesse. But this is a text for action. And so notice all the commands here. As we go through there, this passage is full of commands. This is not a text of passivity. It's a text of action. It is first and foremost to the shepherds, but when you read a text like this, it should cause you to pray for us because we need it, but it should also call you to examine yourselves because there's nothing in here that every one of us should not aspire to. And this text is important for the pastors of the flock, for the shepherds, because as we sang just a moment ago and we read in Micah, our king, our savior came as our shepherd, and in his in his absence, he has left us as under-shepherds. And so we have to answer to him and we follow his example. 
and hopefully we set an example for you to follow. That's why a text like this is important, because every one of us should be an example to others, younger believers, our, our children, so on and so forth. So uh, opening your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 11 through 16. 1 Timothy 4, verse 11. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning. You are a great and awesome God. You are merciful and patient in all of your ways. Thank you, Josh. You are good and gracious to us. Lord, may your word this morning do its work. May it pierce joint and marrow, soul and spirit. May may it lay us bare before you. May everything that is selfish and self-serving and sinful about us be exposed, that we may bring it captive unto Christ, and we may serve him in faithfulness. Lord, we pray for your shepherds. Pray for me, first of all, as I am chief among sinners. I have no business being here as any example if it were not for your grace. I also pray for my brothers Jesse and Brett as we labor together, and I pray for faithful men in every pulpit across the country, across the world. May you keep them from the evil one. May they be faithful in their call, and may you surround them with godly men and women who, who encourage them and hold them accountable when needed. Uh, may we all be faithful examples that your bride might be pure and blameless and mature at your coming. And it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, So we're beginning in verse 11 with two commands, command and teach. The first one, command. As we've seen throughout this letter, Paul uses a lot of military language. This is a, a, a strong word. It means to announce orders, command these things. And it does not mean that you do it on your own authority. Like a good subordinate, you carry out orders given to you. You are relaying orders on higher authority. And you're not just to bark orders. You're not an authoritarian. You command and you teach. So as you command, you explain and apply. But these, these, these continual verbs mean that we never let up. We never stop commanding the scriptures. We never stop teaching the scriptures. You can't command without explanation. And you can't teach without authority. You need both. You need the authority of the word of God that is given to his inspired writers through the prophets and the apostles. And people need explanation. And they need application. And so this is why Paul says to command and teach these things. So number one, as you're going to see in your outline, he needs to be a personal example. The example starts with the leaders of the church. The shepherds begin this. 
Command and teach these things. We've looked at this a couple times. This is number three of eight. Eight times in this letter, Paul says these things, these things, these things. Generally speaking, it's the entire letter. But specifically, this, this chapter. You want people to, to continue in, in godly living. You want unity. You want growth. You want health. The things we've seen already. Beware of legalistic and ascetic teaching that demons bring into the church to try to create division. Instead, promote enjoyment of the Lord because your God is a creator of all things and he gave them to you for your enjoyment. Continue in your training, training others also in godliness. And in that training, strive in your, li- in your living hope, even in the midst of opposition. And so as we've seen from the very beginning, beginning in verse 3 of chapter 1, there's opposition in Ephesus. Opposition from, from teachers And now Timothy himself is facing some opposition. Even if it's not spoken, uh, it probably is. But what's his opposition? Let no one despise you for your youth. This in the Greek is literally look down on you. Why would they look down on you? Well, let's talk about youth for a moment. So at this time, this is probably written around 63 A.D., Uh, Timothy had joined Paul earlier as a a young man in his mid-20s. Now he's in his mid-30s, roughly 35. Don't let them despise you for your youth. In our culture, 35 is like you have nothing else to to contribute, right? We, We exalt youth, but that culture exalted age. So much so, in fact, that you are still considered an adolescent, not capable of any real responsibility until you were 30. And even then... You weren't given any, any responsibility or seen as an elder or a leader until at least 40. You weren't considered an elder until you had gray hair. Very different. So now you can see how they would look down on, on his youth. Um, I faced that when I was here because I also came here at 35. Um, Rick Kelly, who is now passed on, uh, he was the youngest member of the church at 63 when I got here. And he said, this is the first time I've ever had a pastor who's younger than me. And so he never looked down on me for my age, but it definitely was an adjustment. It was an adjustment for a lot of our, a lot of our elderly members um, because you're used to an elder is the older guy, and here I come in, this young whippersnapper who um, has these crazy ideas uh, about teaching and preaching and evangelism and things like that. So, but their culture, it's more steeped than ours. And so um, it was not typical for someone even in their 30s to be considered a leader. Um, but that was typically when you, when you moved into the family business, which is why Jesus began his ministry in his 30s, or at 30. So why does Paul say this? Number one, Timothy should not contribute to their concerns. You may be younger than them. You may not be seen as a leader, but don't, don't perpetuate it. Make sure you, are, uh, you set yourself an example to all. This is also a call to the congregation not to look down on who God has called. And so how does he put their concerns at ease? And so before we get into our next verse, or the, or the end of this verse, we are people who learn by imitation. And so this is how you set the tone for the church. If you don't set a godly example of imitation, they're going to find someone else to imitate. We are called sheep for a reason. We will follow someone. If you are not worth following or you are a poor example to follow, the sheep are going to come right after you. And if you're not worth following, they will find someone else. 
Because there are plenty of other voices, especially in the culture and the world around them and us, that says, follow me. I've got the path for your life. I'm gonna give you your best life now. And I will, I, will, I will make you happy if you just listen to me. That's why the examples that we set are very important. And so this is how Timothy sets aside their, their, their concerns. He stands in the face of, the, of, of opposition by setting an example. So he says here, set an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. We just saw in chapter 3 that the elder must be above reproach and have no negative charges against him. But he also must set a positive example. And so this is um, most clear in 1 Timothy chapter 5. This personal example is something that, or excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 5, we're in 1 Timothy. Uh, This is something that Peter, an apostle, sees himself as an elder. And he says here in in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, He puts a great emphasis on their example. This is a sister passage to what we looked at in 1 Timothy 3. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That's where the title of the sermon comes from. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is why we shepherd. This is why the church institutes elders. Because God cares for his sheep enough to send his son to die for them. And we are placeholders. We are to be stewards until he returns. And we don't labor for what anything man can give us. We labor for the unfading crown of glory. And we fear the Lord because we are under the chief shepherd. And so this example, this personal example, we do unto the Lord first and foremost. And because we do it unto the Lord, it is what is best for the body. And so here's why Paul, as speaking to Timothy, gives an example. This is not exhaustive. But he's essentially saying here, your entire being, all of you, your speech, your conduct, your love, your faith, your purity, purity, we'll look at each one of those briefly. Why is it important to set an example in your speech? Because here's something that no one told me before getting into pastoral ministry, is that people begin to talk like you. They say what you say. They begin to quote you, and they begin to, to, to speak like you speak. That is a scary thought. I'm very controlled here in, in the pulpit, but my mouth is not always my best friend. And so I have to be very, very careful. If I say something foolish, if I say something false, I immediately legitimize it. One of the, one of the most intimidating times in my ministry was when I looked and someone said, oh, I, I love what you said this morning, and they wrote it in their Bible. The moment that someone wrote something I said next to the inspired word of God, that struck the fear of God into me as it, as it should. Because I'm instructed to command and teach according to the authority of God. So I must be careful of my speech, not just in the pulpit, but wherever I am. And not just my speech, my conduct. Because we become an example of what is acceptable and what isn't. Well, Pastor Tim did it. Pastor Jesse did it. If you serve and love others, they will too. If you're distant and you're judgmental, they will be too. 
And there is a great weight on that. We are to model Christ and you are to follow us as we follow Christ. And the moment we don't, do not follow us. And we do that out of love. We set an example in love. If you don't love the flock as pastors, you're in the wrong place. What did Jesus tell us? The greatest commandment of all, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the other one is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so our love for the Lord will be manifested in our love for the sheep. This is the challenge that Jesus gave to Peter. You love me? Feed my sheep. We must be an example in that. We must be an example in faith. We must be firmly grounded to stir one another's on. We must hold fast to the faith because if we don't, if I waver in my faith, if I doubt, how many people have skeptics and false teachers led astray? Because they don't hold to the faith. And so we must be an example in that as well as purity. We are to be self-controlled, not self-indulgent. How can we, as leaders in the church, expect sheep to mature if we're playing in the mud? And so we have to set that example. And as you go through this list, some of the men here want to be in ministry one day. And we're looking at adding deacons, every man being an example in his house, this is intimidating. My, my wife and my children are looking to me to be this, especially if you're a young man, especially when people are watching and imitating you. Follow me as I follow Christ. The greatest regrets in my ministry are when I've failed in these areas, when I've been a poor example in speech, when I've been a poor example in love, I've been a poor example in conduct and faith and purity, and it won't be the last time. So be gracious with me and be gracious because all of us are to be ambassadors for Christ. And if your leaders do this, they won't look down on you, they will look up to you as they should if you're a godly leader. But I want to ask you, If you read this text and think, oh, man, that's a lot for you, Tim. Glad I can just kick my feet up. Which one of these things should you not aspire to? Which one of these things does not please the Lord in your life? Which one of these things is not worth emulating? And so then I have to ask you, what would others say about you? Do you live a life that is exemplary? Do you live a life that is worthy of imitation? Or do you think that I can just coast through and hope no one will will, will notice me and do whatever I want? That's probably the posture of most people in most churches. Verse 13, how long should we do this? How long is this the charge for the church? When do I get to put my feet up and just coast? Verse 13, Paul says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So number one, he's called to a personal example. Then he's called to this public exercise or public faithfulness, whether Paul's there or not. So Timothy is holding down the fort until the reinforcements come. How do you keep the enemy at bay? What do you do when the the, uh, fort needs protecting and the people within it? Here's what you do in your, your, your public ministry. 
is what you devote yourself to, the reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Uh, let's look at these each briefly. The reading of Scripture. Uh, this is a pattern all throughout Scripture. I think one of the best examples of this is Ezra. It won't be up on the screen because uh, I decided to add it later. But Ezra and Nehemiah, one book in, in the Hebrew, it's this, the ongoing saga of Israel going back to the land. And I love just one verse, Ezra 7.10, what it says about Ezra. Why was there such a great reformation in the time of Israel? And this is led by Ezra the teacher. Ezra 7.10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. As you read through Ezra, as you read through Nehemiah, it is the word of God that convicts people, that that puts them into line with, with what God has instructed them. And there are many examples of this in the New Testament, but I think it's interesting, at the end of uh, Colossians, there's one at the end of 1 Thessalonians 2, but Colossians 4, verse 16. When Paul writes his letters, there's an expectation. You are to read them, and all the churches are to read them. There is an expectation within all the churches that the word of God, the law of God, is to be read and applied. And it is the leaders who set that example. So Paul here, writing to the church at Colossae, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the churches of the Laodiceans. So the scriptures are not just for their intended readers, they are, but it's for all the churches. And see to it that you read the letter from Laodicea. I wish we had that letter, but we don't. Uh, and so we know that that's not part of God's design for his canon. But the principle is important. The scriptures are always to be read in all the churches. Because what is good for God's people here is good for God's people in all nations. So you read the word of God. You, you read it publicly. And you exhort to the exhortations. What is an exhortation? It is... Um, commands toward encouragement and, and warning, typically an encouragement. But even a warning is an encouragement. Don't do this because it will lead to your harm. Stay away from this. Award, uh, avoid this. But we also want to encourage one another toward holiness. We want to remind one another of what the Lord's word says. Command these things and teach them why they are important. So you read scripture, you exhort, and you teach. You don't just... You don't just give commands. You don't just pat people on the back and tell them they're wonderful all the time. Christ is wonderful. You're a sinner. Praise God that he gave you his righteousness. And so we teach one another because we're dumb sheep and we need to be reminded. We need these things explained to us. We don't always apply what we, what we hear. There is interpretation, there is explanation, and there is application of Scripture. And so when you put these three things together, it describes an expository ministry. An expository ministry, as we work through the scriptures, it includes all three. We must read them. We must encourage one another to follow them. We must teach and explain them. And this should remind us of Paul's next letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy. I want to begin in verse 14. You know 16 and 17. You probably should. All scriptures breathe out. But look at verse 14. He's reminding Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith. That's important as we get to the very last line of our text. The scriptures themselves that Timothy was raised in, that he continues in, 
They are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to the exhortation, to the teaching, because all scripture is breathed out by God. And it is worthwhile, it is helpful, it is uh, advised for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? What's the purpose? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is what is required in the churches. This is why the preaching of the word of God and the teaching of the word of God is so primary here. That's why every time we get together, we open the scriptures. Because this is what God has given for his people. It is breathed out by God. His spirit has given us his word. Why would we go to the wisdom of man? When the scripture, we will spend the rest of our lives reading in and delving the, the, the scriptures and still not get close to comprehending them in their fullness. This is important in this church, but even more so in the church in that day. Because no one had a Bible. There was no complete Old and New Testament. And almost no one had their own personal copy of the scriptures. So, they would be on the edge of their seat as they're, as they're talking throughout the week. But when they come together and the word is opened and the word is explained, now they get to hear the word of God and they get to hear it applied. And when we do this, we're continuing what the church has always done. I want to give you an example from the very early church. Justin Martyr, in his first apology, the middle of the second century, around 150 AD, he says this. On the day called Sunday... All who live in cities or in their country gather together to one place. And the, memor and the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read. And as long as time permits then, when the readers have finished, the, the, the president or the one presiding speaks, instructing and exhorting the people to imitate these good things. That was 900 years ago. And this is still or 1,900 years ago. Um, I'm not up here for math. So, um, and and this, is, this is what is still important for us. But how many things do we add to this list? You've got to have a snazzy website. You know, you've, you've got to have the air conditioning at the right level. You've got to have a children's ministry, or you've got to have this or that. And, and we, we, we have those things. Those are not bad things. But how many other things do we add on to what is essential? This is what the church has always done. And if persecution comes, or... Our power grid gets, get, gets shut down. We still have the word of God that is able to raise his people in any time, in any era. And we teach and we preach and we encourage one another in that, as the church has always done and will do until Christ returns. So the question I asked earlier, how long do you do this? Well, Timothy was to do it until Paul, until Paul came, until reinforcements came. But that doesn't mean that Paul's always going to be there. The church does this until Christ comes. And continuing that analogy of holding down the fort, that is what we are doing. We are to continue in these things until Christ comes. We hold down the fort. Why? Because as Paul tells us in Ephesians, the arrows of the evil one are flying over the fort. And every chance he gets, he is trying to knock down the door. He is trying to climb over the wall. And he'd be completely happy if we just let him in the front door. So this is how we hold down the fort, because if we open the scriptures, and we teach the scriptures, and we command the scriptures, and we apply the scriptures, 
That is the greatest guard we have against error, inside and outside. And so we all, as the church, every one of us, has a responsibility to wield our sword. Because with the sword, we protect and promote the church through the word of truth. Amen. Let's move on. Verse 14. So he continues with how you do this. Do not neglect the gift you have, which has been given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Therefore, do not neglect the gift. Don't neglect your gift of preaching and teaching. Um, There may have been more specific words. We don't really know what else is said. But here's what he says at the beginning of 2 Timothy. So reading 1 Timothy is, is helpful when you understand 2 Timothy. Because they, they really are to be read together. Because Paul gives us the, the most full picture of Timothy's life. I mean, we, we probably have the most intimate uh, details of Timothy's life other than, you know, outside of the apostles. And more than most apostles. So 2 Timothy ver, or chapter 1, verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan the flame, fan, fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us his spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So he tells Timothy through the laying on of hands, God has given you a gift. And what a great gift indeed. This gift given by God to lead and teach and encourage his people. Remember, we just read from chapter 4, you're supposed to teach the things that you've learned. It is given by God, but it is developed by man. And so here's this, this fan the flame picture. I had to do a lot of this in Idaho because it was freezing. And so um, if you're outside, you, you start a fire. If you're inside, you start a fire. If you do anything, you start a fire. And um, there is a big difference between a, a little fire and when you start to blow on it. When you, when you introduce oxygen, those flames roar. There may be hot coals at the bottom, but if you put a new piece of wood on, on hot coals and you blow on it, the fire begins to wrap around it. The fire begins to engulf it. And the picture we have of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that of fire. We saw it in Pentecost. We're going through Acts. Fire is the only substance when distributed, it is not lessened in its power. You can, you can we can on a... Um, We can pass fire from one person to another, and it will be as hot and as effective from one to the other. What a beautiful and perfect, precise picture for the Holy Spirit. That every believer is given the Holy Spirit, and the the, the power and efficacy of the Spirit's work is not diminished from one to the other. And God gives that. It is God who gives the power of the Holy Spirit. It is God who gives the, 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 the flame, but we are to fan it. And we are to introduce oxygen. We are to, to, to feed it. Every one of us have been given gifts. Timothy has it. Now, your gift may not be given publicly. It may not be given through the prophetic laying on of hands of other elders. But you have all been given spiritual gifts. And you are all not to neglect them because you all have been entrusted with the power of the gospel. And inside all of you resides the power of the Holy Spirit. And as he told Timothy before, you are given power, love, and self-control. These are not separate from any believer. The power of God resides in us. It is that power that raised us from the dead. It is that power that that continues in us as, as we minister. 
that allows us to go before the throne of grace. And we do it in love. And we do it in self-control. And it is easy for any of us to neglect those, those gifts. And so like the fire, we are to fan them. We are to blow and breathe life into those gifts because a roaring fire is not easily put out. And that is what Paul is trying to encourage Timothy with here. But Timothy's gift is distinct because it was given through the counsel of the elders, through prophecy. And so prophecy is essentially um, speaking with godly intentionality, insight, and, and foresight. There's a lot of debate about, about what prophecy is. But elders still can speak prophetically in a way that, that, that honors God. We are not introducing new scripture. But we are speaking in agreement with, with scripture and encouragement. It's something that comes along with the office. And that group of elders is a, a council. This is why we use the word. Because a council is a group of men who come together in agreement to make decisions, to, to give counsel, uh, to, and to act in unity. And so when they come together, when they install, ordain, whatever term you want to use, there is an importance that you do not just appoint yourself pastor. There is no one in the New Testament who starts their own church and appoints themselves leader. There is a, a laying on of hands. There is a commissioning always. And it's important because the laying on of hands symbolizes confirmation. It symbolizes transfer of gifts, and it symbolizes blessing. I'm going to give you two examples. Numbers 11. So Moses, early on in the life of Israel in the wilderness, is really struggling with, uh, he's got long days, as a pastor can often have long days, because people, sheep, have problems. And if you're the one guy with 600,000 people coming to you with their issues, you're going to be exhausted, and you're not going to be able to uh, give them the leadership that they need. But Jethro, his father-in-law, gives him good advice in Exodus 18. And we, we, we see what's going on behind the scenes here in Numbers 11. Numbers 11, verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. What, we're doing, what we do now in the church with elders representing or recognizing godly leaders is what the, the people of God, the assembly of God, has always done. So recognize these men. Bring them with you in the tent of meeting. This is the, 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 the congregation, the church, if you will. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you, and I will put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may no longer bear it alone. Praise God in his design that I am not called to bear it alone, and bread is not called to bear it alone, and our brothers who labor in other churches are not called to bear it alone. And there is a sense which we don't understand. When you are put into the office, when the elders lay their hands on you, the Spirit empowers you and gifts you for a ministry that you are not ready for. No one is ever ready for the call. But there is a, a, a spiritual change that happens if you submit yourself to the Lord. He, he equips those he calls. And so this is the, we did this just a few weeks ago with Brett. This is the practice of the early church. Acts 14, we, we read this before Brett's installation. Acts 14, verse 13. Uh, I think I put three. Should be 13.
No, 23. That was a typo. So Acts 14, 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So elders in every church with prayer and fasting, and that's also the wrong text. Uh, Anyways, there are examples in Acts of them placing hands on. It's there. Um, So that's important because you are recognized by other godly men, and it is the, the, the practice that continues throughout the church. All right. So he goes on. From the personal example to the public exercise, now to this persistent effort. This pastoral devotion in both personal and public life. Verse 15. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your your progress. I love this word practice. We we can't get to the heart of it in the English. Um, But in the Greek, there's this sense of of cultivate, of uh, nurture and, and, and care for. It's not just a mindless, heartless exercise. It is a word that is applied to farmers how does, how does a farmer get something to grow? How does he care for his land? He waters it. He tills the soil. He fertilizes it. Practice these things. Cultivate these, these things. A farmer is devoted to his land because if he's not out there regularly pulling weeds and running off pests and fertilizing and watering, there will be no fruit. The church is the same way. I know many guys who love that they get to preach every Sunday and they do as minimal shepherding as they can throughout the week. You can't nurture and cultivate something you don't care for. That's why he follows it up with immerse yourself in them. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. This in the Greek it is literally completely be in. Be all in. All of you. A shepherd lives with the sheep. He is committed to his calling because he is being shepherded by the chief shepherd himself. And this, this, this can't be, we have vocational elders. They, they must work a full-time job. Or excuse me, uh, lay elders. I, I'm a vocational elder. I don't know what's going on. I'm, I'm in like three different time zones away because I got in late last night. Forgive me. I'm just going to preface everything else I say by that. Um, but we, we are to give all of ourselves to it. We must be immersed in it. It it doesn't mean it consumes all of our time. It doesn't mean we we can't do anything else. But you can't do it with half a heart. You must be devoted to it. Um, Charles Spurgeon said this of ministry. He said, I would rather wear out than rust out. And he did. I would rather wear out than to be sedentary and rust out. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in these things so that... All may see your progress. This should be evident to everyone. Your, your skeptics are going to say he's, he's too young. But guess what? If you are an example in your speech, in your conduct, in your love, in your faith, in your purity, if you devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, to application, you think they're still going to have the same concerns? Devote yourself to these things. If you, if you practice them, if you nurture them, if you immerse yourself in them, in all see your your progress, they will love you. They will follow you, and you will be faithful in your call. Be that example in teaching and in calling. And this is a challenge to pastors because we can never be above growth. We can never be above learning, 
We can never be above admitting when we are wrong. We, can, we must set an example in all things. We must nurture these. It breaks my heart when I meet believers who I know, and I haven't seen them in 10 years, and they are exactly in the same place they were, when they were 10 years ago. Nowhere else would we expect that. Nor, no one gets into a job thinking, I want to stay at my entry-level position for the next 10 years. If you've been there for 10 years, you should be better at your craft. You should desire or at least be recognized enough to be promoted or given more responsibility. But how many Christians are okay being in the same place they were last year and the year before and 10 years before and 20 years before? Grow in these things. Practice and mercy things. So here, all of us must practice what is good for the body. Because here's the thing, ministry itself, serving others, it promotes growth. I guarantee you, the more time you spend with other believers, the more time you spend in God's word, the more time you, you, you spend with people, the Lord will grow you and he will, will teach you. And for pastors, first and foremost, we continue in this, but not that we ever become perfect. And I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, 3 verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. This is the righteousness that he has through Christ. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That is all the motivation we need. Christ died for me and gave me his righteousness. And I press on. Not because I'm going to be perfect now or I'm guaranteed that in this life, but because he, I am pleasing in his sight because of his righteousness and one day I will be perfect. But I'm going to keep pressing on because I want to grow in that. I want to please God. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Paul hasn't arrived. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. None of you are exempt from this. You should all strive for maturity. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal also that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. That is the model for the church. To be examples because other people are watching. And he is always bringing in new believers. And he is, and he is always raising up children who are to watch those who go before them. And so in that, it applies to all of us. And so in our last verse here, a, a kind of a summary of everything we've seen in the chapter. Keep a close watch on yourself, verse 16. Keep watching and on teaching. Here's that personal and public again. This is a summary. Keep a close watch on, your, on yourselves, your personal devotion, and your public ministry. There is a danger in neglecting one or the other. And I know many pastors struggle, and it's usually with the latter. Good pastors struggle with the latter. Or excuse me, the, uh, the, uh, the, the former. That they don't watch themselves. It is easy to look like you have it together on Sunday morning. It is easy to prepare a sermon. It is hard to surrender your soul to the Lord. It is hard to open yourself up to accountability. It is hard to admit that you are not enough. It is hard to admit that you are weak. It is hard to stir on the fire in your own soul. It is easy to walk as a hypocrite like you've got it all together and you're a wreck in your own home and in your own heart. 
So you must keep watch over both. This is the same thing that Paul says to the church in Ephesus several years earlier in Acts chapter 20. We've looked at this several times because this really is the, the precursor to this entire book. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Notice, all the yous here are plural. Praise God for a plurality of elders. Praise God you don't have to do it on your own. Pay close attention to yourselves, all of you, and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made all of you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. We can't separate ministry from the gospel. It is so easy for us to just do the same thing we always do. We're people of imitation and we're people of routine. It's Sunday I go to church. It's Wednesday I go to Bible study, or I don't. But our motivation should always be that the church itself is obtained with the blood of Christ. This is the motivation of the elders. This is the motivation of the members. We, do, we work out of Christ's finished work for us. And we can't separate what we do from the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. If we know that he has accomplished everything we need for eternity, how free are we to minister and be faithful today? He goes on, I know that after my departure, it's a guarantee, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Just a few years later in Ephesus, these warnings are happening. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. You think Paul is passionate about this? Night and day with tears. He loves the church that much, as should we. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That is why he puts the emphasis on the word. It is the grace of God through the word of God that reminds us in our salvation as he is sanctifying us. And so as we think about this, we don't judge our leaders by how they dress or how they look or some external quality. We judge our leaders here by their character and their doctrine. That is where we begin in judging our leaders. It is so tempting to be superficial. And he says, watch. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. Persist. So, no one quits the race before it's finished. No one leaves the battle while bullets are still flying unless they're a coward. Persist in this. How many Christians think it's okay to check out while the battle is still raging on? The race is, still needs to be ran. You need others urging you on. This is why we toil and strive, as he says in, in verse 10, because we have our eyes set on our hope. And we do this until Christ comes, and we do it together. And we do it with brothers and sisters who are striving toward the same goal. And this work, as we said last week, this is joyful toil. Because we do it out of Christ's joy looking at the cross. We look back at the cross and we look forward to glory and we press on, as Paul says. And so, by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So, um, this caused a little bit of confusion, so we're going to spend a few minutes talking on it. 
Here's what we know. We must know. Salvation is a work of the grace of God by the mercy of God through the finished work of Christ. Amen? Amen. Preserved and continued on by the Holy Spirit. So what does Paul mean? First and foremost, we cannot save anyone. We cannot justify anyone. But in a way we can't fully understand and we must trust God uses us in the salvation of his people and the continuing salvation of his people. When you read the New Testament scriptures, salvation is a complete act. Past, present, future. Past, you have been justified through the finished work of Christ on the cross. Present, you are being sanctified by the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. Future, you will be glorified when Christ brings all things to consummation. So when we speak of being saved, you, you will save we, be, we get to be a part of God's salvation. Let me give you a couple texts where uh, Paul uses this phrasing often, and I only, I only selected two. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the, the gospel chapter of the book. The resurrection chapter, if you will. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received... And in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Wait, Paul, you're the one who taught us justification by, by faith alone, right? What do you mean we're, we're, we're being saved? You are saved, and you are being saved, and you will be saved. But it doesn't mean that our salvation depends on this, but we are to fan the flame. He goes on, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. How do we know who the saints truly are? How do we know who's really saved? Those who persevere to the end. It is not our job, as we used to joke, we do not have an elect detector. We can't look at someone's forehead and say, you're in Christ, you're not. That's why we encourage all of each other to persevere. That's why we fan the flame in ourselves and in others. Another text, Colossians 1, 21 through 23. The gospel, you have been saved, but you are being saved, and so you are to continue in that salvation. Now look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Does those sound like people who are saved? You used to be aliens. You used to be hostile. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Sounds like you're saved. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, that's not conditional. That's a challenge. He's already said, you were hostile, now you're reconciled. If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. We can say, you are in Christ. Praise God if he has brought you from alien and orphan to son and saint. But it doesn't mean we neglect our, our, our salvation. And we have to be honest. There are many of us who are going to proclaim Christ and walk with us for years and one day say, I don't know him. There are many who we saw it in the book of Hebrews. We see it in Matthew 7. Lord, Lord, look at all the things I've done. And I never knew you. That's why we encourage one another to persist on. That's what the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews. We are saved by faith through the finished work of Christ. And to make sure we all make it to the end, we are going across the finish line together. We are holding each other. We are pulling each other along. 
And so if we can't save others, if, if we're not justifying others, why does Paul say what he says? And by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The shepherd's aim is always the souls of the flock. The building can go. The finances can go. What will remain forever is the souls of the sheep, beginning with himself and his household. His greatest concern is for their salvation. If you are in Christ, I want to stir you on in it. I want you to continue in it. I want you to be strong and rooted in it. If you are not in Christ, I want you to repent and turn to him for your salvation because that is the only thing that matters when this life is over. In God's providence, he uses some to plant and some to water the seeds of life because he prepares the fertile soil for them to grow. So here's what we need to take away from this. We are not the author of salvation, but we do nurture salvation. We are not the author of salvation, but we do nurture salvation, like he called Timothy to earlier, to practice it. And sadly, the health of the church rises and falls on its leaders. We saw this in Israel. Bad king, wicked nation. Good king, God's wrath is, is laid aside, and he, and he blesses them. Because we are to set an example, because people do listen to us and do follow us, it is easy to lead people astray. And if you have poor leaders, if you have leaders who are not feeding the sheep, you are going to have weak, unhealthy sheep. If you are feeding them milk every week, they're going to be on the bottle for the rest of their lives. But if you set a godly example, if you persist and devote yourself to ministry, you will have strong, healthy sheep. And you will have a strong fortress that the enemy will not be able to burst through. And I am so glad for the many mature men and women we have in this church. I love when I hear a story of someone trying to insert false doctrine and right away. Or even slightly erroneous. Like, wait a second. Um, here's what this text says. Here's what, here's what this text says. I love that when we have concerns, we have godly men we can call on. I love it when women are struggling in their assurance, there are godly women who come along and encourage them. This is the design of Christ's body. And as I said last week, my pastoral charge, my pastoral aim from the end of Colossians 1 is to teach and warn everyone that we may pre present everyone mature. And we struggle in that because we're weak, but praise God, it is his strength with which we act. Um, so I want to finish with our last text here and then a brief con conclusion. Um, Ezekiel chapter 3. We covered this earlier in our intercessory prayer. The design for pastor combines the idea of elder and shepherd from the Old Testament, but also watchman. This is what Paul is getting at with, with Timothy. Because there are lies coming. There are commands that must be given. Here is your charge. This is Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 16. And at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. That's our charge. What God says, we repeat. We command on his authority. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, God uses us in the salvation of people, 
That wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require of your hand. That is the weight that is on the shepherd, that is on the watchman. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die of his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. All we can do is point people to the scriptures. Praise God, we're not responsible for their responses. That we can stand with a clear conscience that I have not shied away from proclaiming to you the whole counsel of God. And if you reject it, that is between you and the Lord. Again, he says, if a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. That's what Paul means. If you persist in these things, keep watch over your soul, or your, your life and your doctrine, you will save yourself and the souls of your hearers. You are not their, their, their savior, but you do participate in God's salvation and his continued work of salvation. So, in conclusion, again briefly, Praise God that in Christ our labor is not in vain. We leave the results up to him. He brings the increase. We are to, we are to plant and water and uh, cultivate, and we trust the Lord that he'll continue, that his word will not come back void. Praise God, we get to be about our father's business. He is in the business of saving souls, and we are in the family business. We follow these commands because that's what our Savior came to do, and that's what he entrusted us with until he returns. And so we are to be a part of salvation. We get to be a part of God's salvation. We do that through being an example. We do that through reading and teaching the word, not neglecting the gifts that we have. We do that through keeping the practice and watching over ourselves and one another. So let us be found as a faithful flock. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your work of salvation, your grand plan of redemption. That before the earth was formed, you knew us, you chose us, you sent your son for us. And that in time, he died on a cross and rose again for us. And that as he departed, he sent his spirit for us. That the fire of your sanctifying work would cleanse our souls, would present us in righteousness to you that would sanctify us and separate us from the world. Lord, may we fan the flame that you have given us. May we command and teach solid doctrine. May we be examples for one another in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. May you guard and protect your shepherds from temptation, from distraction. May you teach your people to be encouragers of one another. May we pray for one another. Pray in our salvation, for the salvation of the lost. And Lord, I just pray that our lives would be a witness to all who sit here, to all who visit, to all who come in, in contact with us in our lives. 
that you may use us as a part of saving sinners, of drawing sheep back to the fold. And whether we plant or water or, or cultivate, we praise you for the growth. We praise you for life and salvation through Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.